Long Beach Sermons, visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Uh, so last weekend, I was not in church, um, which is a bit unusual, but uh, especially in COVID, where you can go places and still jump on. Uh, Katie and I had we went away last weekend. Uh, Emma Roy actually beat us to it. She went up to this monastery in Big Sur where it's a silent monastery. There's no cell phone reception or anything like that. And she went up. Uh, when did you go, Emma? A couple months ago? Yeah, a couple months ago. Um, and uh, so Katie and I went up for a two-night retreat of silence. And it was, I mean, just lovely. Couldn't recommend it more highly. But there were a few moments. Um, there was a particular moment uh, on Saturday morning when some of the other guests at the monastery seemed to have forgotten that it was a silent retreat center. And I'm sitting out on that little porch in front of our little room looking over the ocean and th these this little group of three is just over sort of this little narrow canyon from us chatting right in front of their room. And I got so angry, <laughs> so hilarious, right? So I'm like a third of the way into my two day retreat with God to, you know, oh, and I am just so, so angry. So I take a deep breath and, you know, do a couple of things I'm supposed to do. And they keep talking. Now, obviously there are a few other things going on for me right now, um, you know, that, you know, I'm bringing in some anxiety to this, you know, silent retreat, some things that I haven't sorted out yet um, because I, I literally, I, I, and this is just embarrassing, okay? But this is just the way it is. So you'll just, you know, this is you too, though. I know it is in different ways, but it's you. I literally find myself halfway across the path to where they're standing before I realize I got up from my chair. I'm a, I'm a hundred yards in. I'm a hundred steps towards them. And I'm all these plans of what I'm going to say to them, maybe I'm going to write it so I can still be silent and keep my moral high ground. And literally, I'm halfway there. And I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? Thank God they were 200 steps away and not 100, right? I mean, thank God. Because there's this stuff inside of us that when we, we come into conflict with people, it just comes up, all this anger. And we're gonna look at that today and we're gonna think about the election on Tuesday and what it looks like to be with people that we are in conflict with and how we do that. And we're gonna think a little bit about anger. It's not mostly about anger. Um, but you know, sometimes anger's also healthy, right? I mean, sometimes it is. Um, it's the fuel that God uses to help us find the energy to pursue the fight for justice. 
uh, one of our groups, I think there are a number of folks on the call right now, actually, who are reading this book by Austin Channing Brown. And this is one of the things she says about sort of the flip side of anger. We're going to think a little bit about that as well. Anger is not inherently destructive. My anger can be a force for good. My anger can be creative and imaginative, seeing a better world that doesn't yet exist. It can fuel a righteous movement towards justice and freedom. She's talking about working towards racial justice. So what do we do with the different kinds of anger? How do we sort them out? What do we do in these conflicts? Um, that's what we're working on today. And we're really not gonna shy away from talking about the politics of it all. Not gonna tell anyone how to vote. That's not our place. Uh, but to say, hey, there are some dynamics happening here, happening in how we talk to each other, how we talk to our family and our friends, how we talk just at a national kind of scope that there may actually be some, some deep wisdom that we can connect to from the book of James, which is the, the book in the Bible that we've been working through uh, over the last few weeks, like there really may be some kind of larger things, some dynamics that we want to look at together. We want to explore where, where can anger be helpful? Where are there times where we, we know something's off in how we're expressing our anger to our family, to our friends, to that random person? on the social media post that you kind of know you probably shouldn't be responding to and yet something is compelling you to anyways. Um, we actually want to dive in. James goes there, we want to go there too. Um, and we're going to take it in a few different pieces, sort of an individual look, some of our closer relationships, and then starting to take a more systemic look as well. So I'm so grateful our friend Michelle Moses has agreed to read scripture for us this morning. Uh, so she's going to read from the fourth chapter in James for us. Thanks so much, Michelle. Good morning. Um, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Your desire, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more than grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. People of God, this God. is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Michelle. Appreciate you. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. So at, at this point, we're going to look at... Um, a couple of things here, but one is James is, is looking at individual conflicts, quarrels, fights. Um, and really the big question that we want to think about today is what are we fighting for? That's what James keeps digging at here. Um, 
what's what's behind it? What are what are the motives? What what's your vision for this relationship for um, for the common good? You know, I think of my, you know, I'm a hundred feet in towards the, you know, other retreat center occupants, and I realize my vision it, it's all red, and it's just I want them to be quiet and know that they're wrong. Well, okay. There's that vision, but maybe there's some other ways too. So, so what James says in chapter four, verse two, you just heard Michelle read it. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight, right? You want, I, I want what I want. It's about me. It's about my quiet. It's about my retreat center, whatever, and whatever it is that you're quarreling and fighting about. And so many times, even the ideals, the political ideals, the ideals around justice that we fight for, so many times we, we lose sight of those and are actually just fighting to be right. Coveting that sense of like, I'm better, I'm right. Um, or it comes down to controlling what others do. I think it's important to note also that, that the anger here and some of the controlling that we do, uh, the coveting, all this stuff, um, there's also fighting within ourselves, right? And some, sometimes it's because we don't like ourselves. I think honestly, that's why I got up and started walking at the retreat centers because I had so much noise in myself that I could not take one more piece of noise, right? I, I you know, it's just been a really demanding season. Um, and so I was just to the top and I went away to, to try to bring down that noise. But in some ways, what happens is when you go into silence is you hear it more clearly. And so I was just straight out of margin. And so in some ways I was, I was hating some of the stuff that was inside of me. Kind of going back to what Brennan was, was saying uh, in the opening prayer, there's still a kid in me that's trying to grow up. And one of the things that, that James says um, in 4.2 is, is that we have these desires, but then um, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You literally do a takedown on the image of God in someone else, or you take down the image of God in yourself, right? We, we know there's a lot of self-hatred going on in this world, and there's a lot of hatred of others. And this is the stuff that James is exposing. Howard Thurman, who uh, was a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr., uh, has also started the first intentionally multi-ethnic church uh, in the U.S. In his little book, Jesus and the Disinherited, he says this, that, gosh, he's just such a profound thinker. He says, hatred is destructive to hated and hater alike. That as we dehumanize others and just want to control them, like they're wrong, they're not, we we're actually trying to 
extract the image of God from them, to dehumanize them so that we can get our way and not feel bad about it. It's why in Star Wars, the uh, stormtroopers all have helmets, right? You, you know this, they, all, they, they have these costumes so that you can shoot them and they can die, but they don't really look like a human being. They don't have a face. But maybe there's a different way of going about it. As we look at the battle within our own selves in James 4.1, it says, your desires that battle within you. Right? The desires are battling within us. Maybe that means it's not just all anger in there or, or hatred. Maybe there's some good in there as well that bears calling out, nurturing, and giving a voice to. You know, this chapter in James has always been one of my favorites. I feel like it uses such strong language. And sometimes I just need that because I resonate so often with the sense that there is a battle going on inside of me. And I need James to give me permission to name it for what it is, to name how angry I feel sometimes to name the sense that there is a good and there's a bad and there's what I want and what I think is right. And to say, yes, sometimes my emotions where my, my head is going, it's deadly. You know, that there is, that that is how intense my anger can feel at times. And, and so there's just something so helpful uh, about articulating, about putting some of these things into words and saying, yes, help me look at this. Help me see what's really going on. You know, this last week, I was in this, uh, this space where I just was like, I really need to hear from some strong women. Like, this is where my headspace was. of just like, I just like, I need this desperately. I need some powerful, wise female voices coming into my head. And so uh, I spent much of this week, probably about eight hours, uh, in total, catching up on uh, the Ally Tour, which if, if any of you have seen it or heard it, but at, uh, our friend Lisa Sharon Harper, she wrote The Very Good Gospel, uh, which back over kind of the spring and summer we were working through together uh, as a church, uh, she led this Ally Tour, and it was really bringing together uh, a bunch of women's voices, Black, Brown, and white women, uh, to say, how, how do we love each other well? in the current political season. And we're talking about just some, oh, some amazing people. Uh, Nadia Boltz Weber was part of uh, the conversation, Alexia Salvatierra, um, Brenda Salter McNeil. You can, you can find the whole list if you're at all interested, uh, clicking the link in the chat. Um, but I just wanted to hear from them and some of the things that they were talking about and thinking about together. And it was so interesting because the question, they would take Q&A at the end of each of these four conversations. And the question that came up from people who were watching over and over and over again was, how do I negotiate relationships in this season with people who think differently than I do? With family and friends who have different political convictions than I do, that this was the sort of it's a real issue. And 
And I think from the conversations that Bill and I have had with, with so many of you, as well as from our own personal experiences, like this is just one of the toughest things that we are facing right now. Politics is something where we are experiencing a lot of fights and quarrels. Some of them out in the open and some of them sort of lurking beneath the surface, right? Like we actually know we can't talk with each other about these things. And so it's just kind of simmering there, right below the surface. Um, and, and I want to say, I, I actually do want to give us the sort of the respect of saying it's more than just, we want people to agree with us. Like I want it, I want it my way. Agree with me. I want to win. It's more than that, right? It gets mixed in sometimes, like Bill was saying, this just sort of, I want to win the argument. You know, our egos get involved, but but there's all sorts of stuff at play, I think, in, in these, these relational, um, the sense of disconnection and challenge in our relationships. You know, I think of uh, one of my really good friends. Uh, I don't have a lot of friends who go back to childhood because I just moved around a lot. And so this particular friendship, it goes back over 20 years now and it's incredibly valuable to me because of that history. Uh, that this is really one of the deepest, closest, longest term friendships that I've had uh, in my life. And, you know, when I think of when she and I first became friends, so much of the friendship was about what we had in common. I mean, it was, it was, we were going to the same seminary and we were both white women married to Latino men. And I mean, just boom, 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 all these things that we had in common. And at some point, in the friendship, things started to change because we were each still very much growing in our relationships with God, but the way we were holding our faith and how those faith commitments affected other things like our political choices, that was starting to become very, very, very different. And it started creating a lot of conflict in the friendship. Like I remember one time she realized that I had voted differently than her in a presidential election and she just started crying. And I was so insulted. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I said some sharp things um, because I was, I was so insulted that she was crying over my vote that had been different than her vote. And I think about what we had going on between us and that there were actually a lot of good things that we wanted. We wanted to be able to talk to each other about political things and, and theological things and sort of feel known and feel accepted. We wanted to have a sense of shared values and shared commitment that would just you know, help us feel kind of that sense of intimacy and just kind of like, yeah, we're going in the same direction together. We wanted to be able to have open, honest conversations. And, and I think even, especially when we're talking about politics, Sometimes we feel like there are practical effects. And so it's like, I want you to help me care about the people that I love. I want you to vote in ways that care for me, that care for the people that I love. You know, that there, there's some real practical dimensions to it. But what I think we started to realize as we were, you know, still kind of trying to work towards a friendship and say, okay, these are good desires. But what if we're not going to be able to be all of these things for each other. 
what if we're actually asking too much of this one friendship? I think in James, the verse that really just like, it just lit up for me as I was reading through this passage over the last couple of weeks, it's in verse two, which says, you do not have because you do not ask God. What if we were asking too much of each other and maybe actually not enough of God? I remember having this one, um, this one particular moment where I, I was sort of, I was yet again in a season of kind of question and realizing, you know, I had, I had questions about my faith, things I wanted to explore. I had this feeling that I might be growing in a different direction yet again and going on a walk with her. And at one point in the conversation, just looking at her and saying, are you still going to love me if I change? Are you still going to love me? Like, how is this going to work? And in the conversation, her saying, yeah, actually, I'm really committed to this friendship. And, and so what we finally, I think, kind of started to learn how to do is when our friendship had started, it was just super intense here, right? Like very focused on each other and how we were building each other up and connecting and all this intensity built into the relationship. And at some point we had to start saying, no, God God is calling. He's putting some real questions, some concerns on our hearts and and they're actually different concerns and we're actually going to have to chase those. We're going to have to start sending some of our intensity in this Godward direction. We're not going to lose our relationship with each other, but we're going to take a little bit of the intensity out of this connection and say like I'm going to give you the freedom to be who you are and ask your questions and and go after God in the way he's calling you. And you, you're going to give me that freedom too. And we're going to actually trust that over time, it's going to help bring us closer together. It's going to be in a different way. But it's, it's going to be honoring. And it's going to be patient. It's going to be realistic. Like this is actually how it works. There's a Jewish rabbi and psychologist named Edwin Friedman. And he was kind of talking about this dynamic and, and how this works between us. And he was talking particularly about relationships where you think somebody else is wrong, right? You think they need change. You want to fix them. And he's kind of saying, you know, it's actually not going to work that way. People don't like to be fixed. People don't like to become a project. People aren't going to change just because you pass them a book, because you send them a great article right? Like, because you nag them about what's important to you. Like, just, that's just actually not how it's going to work. What's going to work, he says, if you want your child, spouse, client, or boss to shape up, or in our case, change, maybe hear you in a new way, be willing to listen to your ideas, what you're actually going to need to do is stay connected while changing yourself, rather than trying to fix them. You go hard in the direction that God is calling you. You do that work. You live that life. You get those stories. And then stay in relationship with them. Share those stories. Don't try to change them. Change them. Just be who you are. Even when it creates a little bit of tension. Love them anyway. Be who you are anyway in the context of the relationship and see what happens. 
you know, the answers that I heard on the Ally tour from these women who, man, you could not get any more committed than they are. These women are political activists. They are, they are agents of change, deeply committed to justice, creating a world shaped by justice. And this was exactly the type of stuff they were talking about. They said, prioritize the relationship. Prioritize the relationship. Don't, don't divorce anybody over political concerns. Don't cut anybody off because of their politics. Stay in the relationship. Show them the respect that you want to receive yourself. And work on yourself. Share your stories. Don't just share articles. Talk about how it affects you, how it affects the people you love. And take a long view. Because we're all still in progress. And we all need to learn from each other. Bill, any thoughts there? Yeah, I, uh, boy, fantastic, as always. Um, <laughs> I mean, sometimes, so, so I want to piggyback on that. And, you know, there's, there's been um, a, a small group of us now. It started off just me and Nicole Mockertrow. Now there are a couple others who've jumped in. Um, we've been reading some Muharista theology. Muharista theology is feminist theology from a Latinx perspective. And it's been really helpful. You know, here's the, the woman, um, Ada Maria Isasi Diaz, who's, we're reading some of her works. Um, she puts together this idea. I mean, I mean, obviously she's super progressive and on all this, this is her perspective. Um, but she values difference exactly like exactly what Brenna's talking about. So I, I just wanted to share one quote and Brenna said I could. So uh, earlier when I asked her. Um, so Isasi Diaz writes, we work at seeing those who are different from us as mirrors of ourselves. And she plays with this idea of mirror some and what we think to help us see our ideas in a new light, maybe even think it possible for us to better understand our own ideas, to clarify them for ourselves and for others, a result that might not be achieved if we were to ignore the ideas different from ourselves or different from ours. To embrace differences, we have to stop being lazy and have to know what others really think. But that requires self-conscious interaction and we are afraid of interacting with those with whom we disagree. All of this requires embracing ambiguity, something that those of us who live at the margins know much about. I mean, that, it's such a rich quote. I'll probably share it in the devotions this week if you wanna see it again, but this idea of valuing differences, using them as a mirror to understand ourselves better, our own stories better. Um, embracing ambiguity, not being lazy and just canceling people. Um, and also recognizing that those folks who live at the margins, who've been pushed to the outside have a distinct advantage here because this has been uh, often their experience. 
And so they've, they've dealt with the ambiguity of trying not to hate, but to actually love and listen while not having power. Um, there may be, I do want to share one, one caveat and, and maybe you said this, Brent, but I didn't think I heard it from you this time. Do you want to say it? No, yeah. He's thinking, as soon as I clicked off, I thought, yeah. oh, is that we're talking about basically healthy relationships here, right? Basically healthy relationships where there's that baseline respect. You're not getting treated in dehumanizing ways. Uh, you're not being silenced, uh, being told that your opinions are unworthy. Um, or, or any other ways that, that people would basically be treating you as if you do not have the Imago Dei, uh, be treating you as if uh, your worth is less than theirs. Uh, in those sorts of relationships, there are healthy boundaries, obviously, that need to be put into place. Yeah. Thanks, Bill, for letting me yeah. say that. Yeah, you bet. Um, so I want to shift here and think a little bit about fights and quarrels from a slightly different angle, because this is what James is talking about. And so we, we've been talking about kind of the one-on-one the -on -one relational dynamics. But, but James appeals to a different idea in this same chunk that is actually really helpful for us to think about. He, he calls it the world. And I want us to think about the world in maybe some different ways than some of us have. Now, some of us here don't have really any particular church background or religious background, great. Uh, in some ways you have an advantage. Um, folks like me grew up thinking that the term worldly meant that you were talking about adult type behaviors that don't reflect traditional morality. You know, they, they happen in, in dark back alleys and you know, are, have to do with alcohol or sex or smoking or something like that. I actually don't think that's what James is talking about here. I think he's actually talking about systems, systems of behavior of, of power excluding those who should be included. So think about this as we read James 4.4 again. He says, you adulterous people, again, he's talking about conflicts, and he's talking about why they're fights. Don't you know that friendship with the world, buying into the system, means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. There's a sense in which we, we buy in to the way things are done. And, and yeah, there's lots of individual choice and individual, individual choice is super important, but, but it becomes bigger than that. Brene Brown uh, speaks a little bit about the, the different uses of power. And she talks about power within systems and she particularly talks about this idea of power over. And this is what she says. That, that in a system that, that leans towards a power over approach, you try to give someone, you try to give people someone to blame, right? Like, oh, these people, they're, they're bad people. These are, you know, yeah. And you maintain power by demonstrating an ever increasing capacity for cruelty, including shaming and bullying, especially towards vulnerable populations. 
This is systemic power where it's built into the way things are done. It actually becomes policy. It becomes a way a society manages its people. And you think of things like how slavery was baked into the culture of our, the founding of our, our country. You think about redlining in the 50s where legally, if you're African-American, you cannot buy houses, in, particularly in the desirable areas. Uh, you think about today, the, some of the ideas around mass incarceration um, and how there are these systems that have been built that have a life of their own now. Um, I was just thinking a little bit, of, I, I just took a quick look this week at Long Beach. And, and again, there are individual ways to take responsibility and do things, but there's also this system. And when we buy into the system, it sets up entire groups of people to be in conflict with each other because it helps one system have more power, one, one group to have more power than the other. And it, it keeps people that way. And so there's always this tension between groups of people. So if you do a quick search uh, around Long Beach, I encourage you to do it and see what you come up with. And you, you think about, um, you know, why do people spend all their money on alcohol? And you look at the west side of Long Beach and realize that there's one bank per five liquor stores. And then you look on the other side, on East Long Beach, and the odds are, are switched, surprisingly. You have so many more options for saving your money, for example, versus spending it on alcohol. It, I mean, the very physicality of our cities are set up in certain ways to, to put certain people here off to the side and give other groups of people certain privileges. And this system, what happens is when we align with it, when we, when we buy into it, we enjoy those of us who have the privilege of the system working for us, it just inherently creates fights and conflict. That's how it's set up. And that's when, when James is talking about friendship with the world, he's saying, when you just accept the system the way it is, there will be fights and conflict. As some people will say, no peace, no justice. No justice, no peace, actually is what they say, right? No justice, no peace. And until there's equality, then there will be no peace. There will be conflict. Comes back to why there's anger built, baked into the system when there's the, the power differential. I'll turn it back to you, Brenna. Yeah, we actually get to end on good news today, though. And it's amazing, you know, Brene Brown is a person of faith, but as she was talking about power, she's not coming at it primarily through that lens. It's just this is, it's, it's more of a sociological lens that she's bringing to it and just saying, hey, there is an alternative. There are these ways, there are these approaches, there are systems that are built from a 
a premise of power over. But there's another way. There's the way that she would call power with. And what's amazing is that this, this is the way of Jesus. The alternate structure that we, we see glimpses of it. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't all have to be a power over struggle. We see glimpses of it and we see it so fully in the life of Jesus. We see how fully he is inviting us into this different way of being. See, there's a completely different version of the world that Jesus invites us towards, that we're invited to co-create with God in this different version of the world, a world built on power with, there's a basic belief that power is not something that we have to struggle for. It's not a zero-sum game. Power is infinite. Power expands, actually, as we give it away. It multiplies itself the more we share it with others. And so we see this vision of the upside down kingdom in the Bible of beloved community, as Dr. Martin Luther King called it, uh, where everyone belongs, where there's a space for everyone, where those at the margins are constantly centered and no one is well until everyone is well. In this alternate vision of power with, leadership is framed as a responsibility towards service towards other rather than being served by others. And leadership is really nothing more than the right use of your power. So it's not just talking about someone who's in some official position. It's actually talking about each of us with the power that we do have, wherever we are, whatever our sphere of influence is, are we gonna use that bit of power, you with your children, you in your position as a, a parent at a school, you in whatever your position at work is, that power, that influence that you have, will you use it to help others? Will you use it just to help yourself? Um, this is the way of grace, the way of humility, it's the way of Jesus. And James talks particularly about friendship with the world. So, Clearly, there's an alternate, alternative way of being, which is friendship with God. Would you listen to this one short story that really just gives us such an incredible visual of the difference? It comes from John chapter 13. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What would you do if all power was given to you? I mean, all of it. You could do whatever you wanted. What choices would you make and how would you hold that power? Now imagine our elected leaders, any of them, any side of the aisle. Imagine them with no checks and balances, unlimited power. How good do you feel about that? A little scary? I see some laughter. Yeah, a little scary. We're not made to hold that sort of power. And yet this picture is Jesus has given all of that, no limits. 
can do anything what he wants. And he shows us how we're meant to hold power. He doesn't start demanding things the way he wants them. He doesn't start, you know, commanding people. He wraps a towel around his waist, literally takes the position of a servant, gets down on the floor to start doing the stinkiest, grimiest job possible, taking the dirty feet of his friends and cleaning them. This is it. This is the choice we're given. The world tells us we're supposed to fight for ourselves. And Jesus said, we're supposed to fight for all of us. We're fighting for a world that includes everybody, cares for everyone, serves everyone. The world says we can do whatever damage is necessary to get our way, especially if we can convince ourselves, you know, that the ends will justify the means, right? That we're just trying to get to a better place ultimately at the end. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say that we get to twist power unfairly in our favor. He doesn't say that we get to use words as weapons or weapons as weapons. Jesus says serve. He picks up his towel and he just loves. He sets a table and he says, come eat with me. Come eat with me. So I just think this is our final question. How are you, how are we going to exercise our power over the next few days? Certainly one of those ways is voting, right? Voting is a privilege and a responsibility. It's an act of power, a way we get to say, I will take what I've been given and I will use it to make a world that is just a little bit more like the kingdom Jesus came to bring, just a little bit more like a beloved community where everyone belongs. But I'm also aware that whatever happens on Tuesday, whoever wins, the work isn't gonna be done. We're actually still gonna be invited to pick up our towels, whatever that looks like. We're still gonna be sent out there to wash some feet. It's not gonna be over on Tuesday or whenever the election is finally called and whoever wins there's still going to be a lot of work to be done. And I'm aware that whenever this election is called, and none of us know, will we be on the side that will be rejoicing? Will we be on the side that's weeping? We don't actually know right now. But I think we all know we're going to be in relationships with people on both sides of that coin. So how are we gonna love them? What is that gonna look like over the next weeks and months? You know, a piece of this story of Jesus that we don't see right here in the text, but Judas was one of those whose feet Jesus was washing. Judas who would go on to betray him. And the story makes it clear a couple of verses down that Jesus knew he knew what, Jesus, what Judas was considering. He knew what he was planning. And he still did it. He still made space for Judas. I wonder, I mean, 
everything we know since that Jesus was fully human. He had to be feeling that anger, betrayal, sadness. I mean, all the things that you would feel, right? All the feelings had to be there in Jesus. And yet it seemed like he still also had hope. He was committed stubbornly to still inviting Judas into that beloved community, into that space. He was still going to treat Judas with care, with concern, with service, to hold out a stubborn hope that Judas could change. It hadn't happened yet. And that there would be, there was hope. How are we going to do that for the people around us? How are we going to show a radical patience, a radical love and acceptance? These are all questions we get to bring with us into these next few days. How are we going to follow in the way of Jesus and help build a community of power with